Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering sensual please remains and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, the UK and European Union are meeting in Brussels today to take stock of a week of intensive talks over Northern Ireland. The UK still insists it remains willing to suspend parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol if the EU does not meet its demands. The Irish Prime Minister says there's serious intent in the EU to solve difficulties around trade. Meanwhile, the Home Secretary, Preeti Patel, has blamed the EU's open borders for spurring a, quote, mass migration crisis in the Channel. She says that the Schengen Agreement that abolished borders among member states has left France overwhelmed. Patel says that the French government has assured her that it would deploy more technology to monitor its northern coastline. Well, let's get on to the subject of today's special programme. We're taking a deep dive into the future of rail. This week, the government announced a £96 billion overhaul of the rail system in the Midlands and the north of England, what it calls the biggest ever government investment in Britain's rail network. But Transport Secretary Grant Shapps confirmed the scrapping of the HS2 line's eastern leg from Birmingham to Leeds. It also retreated from a promise to build a wholly new fast line across the Pennines to Manchester, although there will be upgrades, which the government says will be quicker. Now, after the announcement, we discussed what it would mean for the future of railways with Tony Miles, who is contributing editor for Rail Business UK. We started the discussion around that £96 billion pledge, how far it will really go, and what the key takeaways are from this government plan. The key takeaways particularly are the changes to the HS2 plan and it's important to note uh, probably some of the money that was allocated to HS2 which was outside the main rail budget has been moved in to cover other projects so this £96 billion isn't all new money, it's, it's money that's been moved in so don't get quite so excited uh, but the uh, the plan seems to be that HS2 Eastern Leg will only run as far as East Midlands Parkway so some benefits from uh, London and the West Midlands into the East Midlands, but uh, not going on to Leeds at all. Um, the other bit is that some of the planned new route across the north of England that originally was going to go from Liverpool via Warrington to Manchester, Bradford and Leeds is going to be built. It looks like it's just the, the easy bit from Warrington via Manchester just to um, an existing but empty tunnel across the Pennines. So uh, low-hanging fruit, easy to do, and probably won't achieve anywhere near as much as was originally promised. But it, it gives the Prime Minister a sort of chance to say, I promised I'd build the new railway line in the north of England and I'm building it. OK. Why? Why do you think that the changes have happened? Is it about the ballooning costs of HS2, more than £100 billion? What was the main problem? I don't think particularly it's the, the, the cost of HS2, which whilst it was escalating, the, the business case was still quite strong for levelling up both uh, sides of the, the, the country, um, of the north. But um, 
it, 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 it's, it's more the, the ballooning cost of the railway as a whole, which is behind this as well. Uh, clearly, the, the government's been pumping in billions to keep the railways going, and, that, and that's going to uh, continue. And there is a view in some places that maybe the, the capacity that was originally needed won't be needed for some time, so it gives them a chance to, to park some stuff. But it, it also looks, it does look like they've parked some of the more difficult bits and, and, and are trying to create highlights of, of doing the easy bits. So that sounds like you're saying that the, the pandemic, which has really crushed demand for rail travel, is a, is a factor in these plans. Is it, is it sensible to be making such long-term plans after such an exceptional period? This is the problem. Uh, clearly, uh, it's expected that the, um, the the demand will have returned by the time these projects are finished or were planned to be finished. So even cutting back uh, expenditure now is, is short-sighted because the, the completion dates were, were going to be so far into the future. Um, uh, clearly, the tra- Chancellor's got some difficult decisions to make in the short term, but, but uh, long term, the assumption is that growth will continue. We've got to look at moving more freight around the country, not on... Uh, roads and not completing the, the new Trans-Pennine route properly doesn't give the, the connectivity for freight services out of the mm. port of Liverpool that's been called for. Okay, Tony, I'm no train spotter myself, but I do understand economics and the value of infrastructure. And I definitely do not get why Britain is so far behind in terms of high-speed rail infrastructure. I mean, as far as I can tell, I've been to France and Germany. They've got high-speed rail there. I mean, in France, it crisscrosses the whole nation. Japan, China's laying thousands of high-speed rail uh, lines too uh, in terms of miles. And the UK's got basically one tiny bit that goes to the Channel Tunnel in Kent. So why are we still kind of uh, discussing this and not acting? I think we have we have two problems behind this. One is that uh, we're reluctant as a country to actually dedicate uh, taxpayers' revenue to improving things like the rail infrastructure, whereas in other countries in Europe, even when there are local polls saying, do you want to carry on paying extra taxes towards improving passenger uh, public transport, people have voted, yes, we, we will. Uh, there's an uncertainty whether people in the UK would actually uh, agree to that kind of thing. And also, we we do have this problem that, that governments think in parliamentary terms in, in the five-year periods so, so much that they're reluctant to actually make decisions that impact things many years ahead. So, so we're very short-sighted in the way we view things. It's amazing. In France, post-pandemic, they're actually looking at every rail, uh, every air route within the country that can be uh, removed, taken off permanently, uh, and people uh, required to use rail instead, because environmentally and and for financial reasons, they see no reason why internal flights should continue. Uh, We couldn't possibly do that in the UK with the the rail network that we've got at the moment. Mm, But but HS2 is still controversial, isn't it? There are still many environmentalists who are dead against uh, HS2. It's going to use a lot of energy. It's going to destroy a lot of stuff being built. And it is very expensive. And a number of people say we should be spending that money on conventional rail, upgrading links to the whole country, not just the little bit which will benefit from HS2. Does this deliver those benefits to the rest of the country or is this a sort of uncomfortable halfway house? It, it, well, it's, it's partly an uncomfortable um, partway house, but it does deliver a lot of benefits. And the, the, the problem with HS2 is it's been badly explained. Um, and, and certainly, um, if you look at the, the, the carbon footprint, which people complain about, I, I'm told that it's uh, the carbon footprint for its construction and first 30 years will equal the same as the, the road carbon footprint for a month. 
So you know, people need to look at it in context. Um, but one of the, the crucial things with COP26 having happened and with, with us trying to look at, at ways to, to improve our carbon footprint is to do things like getting lorries off the road as well as cars off the road. There is no room on the main West Coast main line for, for more freight services, particularly uh, it was discovered during the pandemic when a lot of passenger services were taken off. The freight operators suddenly were able to operate much longer freight trains, uh, more punctually, much more efficiently and lower the carbon footprint of, of every vehicle on a freight train. But but they can't do that long term. Uh, if you looked at trying to upgrade the existing railway, you know, we upgraded the West Coast Main Line in 2007 and it's, it's already full again. Uh, and bits of it are falling apart. The bits that weren't upgraded are, are really in a terrible state. And it's a very slow railway because it was built as a, a, a very windy railway when it was built because, strangely, because landowners objected to the railway being built on their on their property. So the West Coast Main Line is windy and slow because the governments back then gave in to objections and had to, to weave their way uh, through the countryside. So we, we, upgrading it would achieve very little. It would involve a far, a far bigger carbon footprint, I would guess, because of the number of houses that would have to be rebuilt. Every station would have to be rebuilt. You'd be having to rebuild every road bridge. Um, possibly far more impact than, than just going straight ahead with a new line that then releases capacity on the existing railway for freight and hopefully in the future as people re- return to rail, more local services as well. Um, I, I read, uh, Tony, uh, on Rail Magazine, no doubt a rival of yours, that <laughs> there's almost uh, no point doing the left fork of the high-speed rail, i.e. Birmingham to Manchester, if you then don't do the east fork, um, Birmingham to Nottingham, Sheffield and Leeds. I, I wonder what your perspective would be on that. Um, it, it does make it does make it less good certainly i mean that one of the the things about the two legs of um, hs2 were that they were going to integrate with the new northern powerhouse rail route across the north of england uh, 80 kilometers would have been shared route and that includes on the eastern leg as well as parts of the western leg so uh, that, and that gave some economies of, of production and and more trains using the the new line making best use of it so only building half of it um, makes Northern Powerhouse Rail, whatever they build, less efficient. And, and certainly, yes, if you talk to the mayor of West Midlands, who may have to uh, find it very difficult now because he's a conservative mayor, but his pitch has always been that businesses in the West Midlands uh, were were moving there, new businesses, because they would have connectivity to the northeast and the northwest, as well as down to London. And it was that central location. Now, if they've moved there or were planning to move there because they were promised good connectivity into the northeast, and they find they haven't got it, then then they may rethink their their position. So for the for the West Midlands, not having all that connectivity that was promised is is going to be a difficult one to to swallow. And so uh, yeah, it, it, the compromises will will hit further than just saving a, a few billion pounds on on a long term twenty year transport budget. And just briefly, how much of a problem is this for the northeast of England and for Scotland, who will now be a very long way from uh, HS two? It does. It does create additional problems, particularly for the northeast. And you know, the, the northeast has been jealous that in initially places like Manchester, particularly, got a lot of investment, a lot of businesses moving, and and Leeds and that sort of region were competing to be the next area that would get investment and and a move of businesses and so on. So uh, relocation to the northeast is going to be mm-hmm. less attractive. It does mean yes for Scotland that the high speed trains will be moving on to the conventional network much further south so it doesn't cut journey times to scotland and if they had ambitions eventually of 
creating a, a high-speed line all the way from Scotland to, to London, then then it makes filling in the gap even more challenging. And, and it, it, it doesn't address the long-term issue that we should be trying to get people uh, travelling those long journeys out of planes and onto rail. Tony. And that has to be an attractive journey time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Well, as the country starts to recover from the pandemic, what should our rail system look like? And do we need to reshape it to meet the changing patterns in terms of people's travel? Our next guest, Seb Gordon, speaks for the Rail Delivery Group, which brings together Network Rail, HS2 and all the companies that run passenger and freight services. And actually, he's at Paddington Station this morning. Quite appropriate, Seb. Great to have you on the programme. How long will it be, do you think, until passengers start to see improvements actually from this government announcement on HS2 and on rail, mainly in the north of England? I mean, clearly these things take a lot of time to, to, to put into place, to, to build. It takes a long time to build new railways. I think it's important to say that there are some good things um, that were announced yesterday. It's difficult, it's easy to, to sort of forget about those in uh, in amongst things that were missing, perhaps. Um, as we've said, it, it feels a little bit like there's some pieces of the jigsaw that are missing. That doesn't mean that there's nothing. It doesn't mean that we can't see some of the picture. Um, we can, um, and there's some good things in, in, in many parts of the country. But if we really want rail to play its full part in a future decarbonised transport system, we need that whole picture. We need all of those pieces of the jigsaw in place. And we think that, the, that yesterday's announcement, like I say, while there were good things, did leave some things out. And when will we actually start to see improvements? Because railway improvements are notoriously slow, aren't they? Are we going to be having this conversation in 10 years' time and, and not seeing much changed? I don't think that's the case. I think I think you know some of the electrification projects to, to existing lines will not take um, you know as long as a decade. Um, so I think we will start to see some of those improvements. But also um, some of the other things that were announced yesterday can can happen a lot quicker than that. So so one of the things that, that passengers get very frustrated about is the rail ticketing system. Um, and one of the things that was was kind of lost in in amongst all of the conversation about the big uh, big infrastructure project yesterday was the funding for more tap in, tap out, pay as you go kind of systems in other parts of the country outside of London. It's really easy to forget living in the capital that we're just, we've had this kind of seamless experience of using transport for, for a really long time. And yet other parts of the country, that's not the case. Um, and that will be hugely transformative for, for people and it will help people to get around more easily because we know that, okay. you know, getting people onto trains is really important for the recovery, as you said. Um, people spend money when they travel by train. They, they, they you know, spend £95 on average hour research shows per journey with local businesses, shops, restaurants, hotels. So it's really important for the economy that we get people back moving. And, and some of the things in yesterday's okay. announcement are really going to help do that and, and, and not, not in the too distant future. 
But Seb, sorry, that's surely small beer compared to a massive infrastructure project that we've been talking about for well over a decade in detail. You say that stuff is missing from the government plan. Well, what? Well, I think you, you, you'll only have had to have sort of picked up any of the media coverage to have seen that, you know, the, the eastern leg of HS2 um, has been sort of cut short. Um, so I think, uh, you know, places like Leeds and, Man- and, and Bradford are going to feel particularly shortchanged um, with, by, by the, the government's announcement. Um, as I say, the, the thing that we, that we really need to do is build these entirely new lines. Um, it means that you can put all of the kind of high-speed services that we've got today onto those new lines and you can build, you can put in many more local services onto the existing tracks. And if we're going to make, uh, d- deliver on the government's uh, decarbonisation strategy, which says we've got to shift people out of cars and onto trains, then we're going to need more of those local services. Um, imagine a future in a, you know, just 20 years' time where you, you train travel is far more um, appropriate and an attractive option for people than it is today. You've got all of these more local services running more frequently. You've got better ticketing systems in place. You've got better journey times. Um, and and, and on the flip side, the reason why that will be attractive is, you know, at some point, I would imagine the government may well have to think about road pricing. And at that point, you're going to have people realising that actually train travel might be, um, you know, a more affordable option too, not just a more attractive option in terms of journey times and, 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 and mm. ease of taking those journeys. Seb, are you still optimistic about the future of rail? After many years of growth in passenger numbers, we've seen an enormous drop-off. And as far as I'm aware, numbers are not back to where they were before. When when are the railways going to recover um, back to their 2019 strength? I I think that's a question on everybody's lips who works in the rail industry. I am optimistic, partly for the the reasons that I just kind of uh, set out. We, We are part of the future. You know, we cannot just think that everybody is going to switch their... Uh, diesel or petrol car for an electric vehicle and the world is going to be, you know, decarbonised. That's not the case. The government's own transport and decarbonisation strategy says that we've got to get people onto greener modes of transport like trains. Trains take, you know, a train can take up to 500 people, a cars off the road. Um, and also freight, we mustn't forget freight. Freight takes 76 lorries off the road, each freight train. So um, I'm hugely optimistic for, for the future of rail travel. It's part of the, you know, the, the future of a decarbonised transport system. But we've got to change the way that we do things. We're going to have okay. a different way of people travelling, different reasons that people travel in the future. We've seen more leisure passengers coming back to the railway more quickly than commuters. So that's going to mean different things. We're going to have to think about how we make long distance fares simpler. That's something that we want to work with the government to do so that instead of having, you know, lots of off-peak tickets and then a big cliff edge from the um, peak fares to the off-peak mm. fares, you have a more graduated approach and you can ch- chop and change your fares more easily like you can with an airline. Um, so that's something that we think that needs to happen to, to help exploit this, you know, this new interest in leisure travel. Um, okay. We've also introduced a flexible season ticket, which is, which is proving useful to commuters. So, yeah, overall, I think I'm pretty optimistic about the future. OK, but um, surely it's fair for, I mean, for any passenger that uses the railways in the UK, it's pretty obvious to see that the rail system is in a bit of a mess. Privatisation has been very difficult uh, and we can't fully commit to the future in terms of expansion. What hope for passengers in the next few years? So I think um, the good thing is that um, the railway uh, was really supported by the government financially during the pandemic. So um, we're back at something around sort of in the region of 70% of passengers travelling. We're running 
almost a full timetable, not quite full timetable compared to the before the pandemic. So what that means is that there's more space for people. The trains are running more punctually because we're not running quite so many of them because we had one of the most congested railways in the world before the pandemic. So if people do come back travelling by train, I think they're going to have a better experience than before the pandemic. And ultimately, that's what matters. If we're going to get people back travelling by train, we've got to have a, a, a more passenger-focused system with our staff in the roles and in the places that people mm. want them with a good service where tickets are easy to buy, where trains are reliable and on time and, and easy to yeah. catch. I know a lot of people up and down the country will be really hoping that that happens and that can be delivered. Seb, thank you so much for being with us. Seb Gordon there from the Rail Delivery Group. Well, let's bring in our next guest, our final guest of the show, Director of the Independent Transport Commission. They carry out research into all aspects of transport policy. Matthew Niblett, thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. Let's uh, pick up where we left off with Seb on ticketing. You've done some interesting research into peak and off-peak fares and their impact on the economy, particularly as people's commutes change due to hybrid working. Uh, how does the how does the system need to change? I think it's important um, to remember that uh, rail has always had a particularly high percentage of commuting and business travellers who traditionally before the pandemic um, moved at uh, peak hours. In fact, more than 50% of rail journeys were for those purposes on the eve of the pandemic, compared, say, to less than 20% of bus journeys outside London for commuting purposes. What that has meant is that the impact of working from home and the acceleration towards hybrid working patterns has therefore hit uh, the rail fare system particularly hard. Um, Before the pandemic, there was a lot of reliance on business travel and commuting travel at peak hours um, to make up the fare box. I think, as you've already heard from Seb, we've seen that Uh, Leisure travel has recovered on rail much faster than commuting travel, and that's probably a trend that is likely to be semi-permanent. So I think what that means, therefore, is that there's going to need to be a greater thought about how the fare system operates and adjusting for perhaps um, a greater spreading of the peak and uh, less demand at peak hours than we saw before the pandemic. Matthew, how optimistic are you about the government's latest announcement in terms of HS2 and the commitment on the future of rail? I think, as Seb has mentioned, uh, it's important to see, uh, take the the positives from the government announcement that they are committed to um, investing in in rail infrastructure and they recognise its absolute importance in terms of decarbonising transport and decarbonising the economy. Um, I think... That the other thing we need to put in context is that although rail travel hasn't yet returned to uh, the height of the pre-pandemic level, um, it's still been a huge success story in Britain over the last 20 years. Let's remember that even if uh, we are returning to an 80% level of passenger demand compared to uh, 2019, that is still only the same level as uh, the demand we had in 2011 and double the amount of demand we had uh, when privatisation happened in 1995. Rail has seen massive, massive growth uh, in demand over the past 25 years. And, you know, this actually offers us, us an opportunity to deal with some of the issues such as the terrible congestion and the overcrowding that we saw on the eve of the pandemic. Um, how much is HS2 an opportunity uh, for freight, uh, freeing up space on existing lines? 
Well, as, as Seb mentioned, it's important to remember with freight that freight travels more slowly than uh, higher speed passenger lines, and it can be very disruptive, therefore, if it's trying to run on the same line as higher speed services. That's why it's important to have uh, slower lines dedicated to freight and local travel and higher speed lines dedicated to passenger travel. Um, obviously, um, where the investment is providing that, that's very good news. But as Seb mentioned, um, Really, if you want to free up the network for much more freight, uh, having those uh, separate lines as well as building new lines to cope with high-speed passenger travel is very important. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.